Well, amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that time. Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to continue our worship through the Word this morning. At the end of the service, we will also partake of the Lord's Supper. And so as we uh, get started to dig into this text this morning, I want to ask you to do something for me. Since we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper, and some, this is really something we ought to be doing every week anyway, I want you really focus in on what's being said this morning because I want to talk about uh, the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf to establish that new covenant that allows us to have a relationship with Him. And I think sometimes that we uh, forget about the wonder of forgiveness, that we take for granted the grace of God, and we lose our sense of awe, what God has done who He is, how He loves us. And so I, I want to focus in this morning in this study here in the book of Hebrews on that. So I'd just like to ask us to really get, get tuned in, get focused in, and, and not get distracted, not be a distraction, but just focus in on what the Lord has to say to us. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to pray. And then we're going to ask the Lord to speak to us and just reveal and remind us once again of what He's done for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask You to captivate our attention, open our minds, our hearts, our ears to hear. I pray we'll not be distracted. Lord, help us to focus in on what You've done for us how wonderful you are to us, what you have provided for us. And Lord, it's impossible for me to preach this message apart from you as it is any message. And I would dare not stand here today without pleading with you to anoint me with Holy Spirit power and enable me to deliver the Word of God with clarity of mind and speech, with compassion, with conviction, with conciseness, and I pray you'll speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've already talked about in this series, God desires a relationship with us. He made people in His own image. He made us to have a relationship with Him. He has a condition for that relationship. It is faith. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has made the provision to allow us to know God, to have a relationship with God. God's revealed Himself to all humanity. He does so in several ways. The evidence for God is clear in what we call creation itself. When you look at the galaxies, you look at the order of the universe, you look at the order of the earth and every life form, even down to the simplest of things like a single cell that makes up a, a living being, you see the complexity of that cell and to think that that or all of this and the order that it's in could just happen randomly is illogical and unreasonable. Matter of fact, if you do mathematical equations to try to figure out the probability of doing something like that uh, by mere chance, you would come up with this conclusion that it's impossible to be by chance. There has to be someone who does it. Some being does it. And that's why in the book of 
Uh, Romans, the Word of God tells us that through what we call general revelation, that is through creation itself, God has revealed Himself so that all people are without excuse. He also reveals Himself in the sense that He has put within us innately an understanding of right and wrong, a sense of morality. How can that be without someone who establishes that morality? You don't just come up with what's right and wrong. There's just something innate within us that lets us know there is. And that's one of those things, one of those factors that points to the existence of God. It's how He's revealing Himself to us. Now, also we know that He reveals Himself through what's called special revelation. That's the Scripture. He tells us things about Himself that we could not know on our own. And by the Holy Spirit, who is working and drawing people to Himself, He enables people to understand things about Him. Then the writer of Hebrews tells us that in these last days, there is a way in which God has spoken to us, and that is that He has spoken to us through His Son. We can look at it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He makes that clear. He's spoken through His Son. He came as an expression of the glory of God, the exact image of the person of God, and so he's revealed himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very fact that Jesus Christ historically existed, historically died, and historically rose from the dead points to the fact that he is indeed the Son of the living God. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the most extensive book in the Bible on salvation, uh, the book of Romans. And here's what the Word of God says. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead." The very fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and there's much evidence that points to that, shows that God exists, and there's one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's why He came, to be the mediator of that new covenant that we talked about in chapter 8 and begin explaining in the first 14 verses of chapter 9 last week. The Lord Jesus is called a mediator. A mediator is one who works out an agreement between two parties. But Christ, being God the Son, is the mediator between God the Father and human beings. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who brings sinful people to God through His death and subsequent resurrection. Now in verses 15 through 28 of this text, we see more about this new covenant. Matter of fact, three things we're going to look at about this new covenant that we see in these verses. Now, look with me in verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament... There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with, with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, or without blood there is no without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, and that is the Lord Jesus Himself. Verse twenty four. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Now I'm speaking this morning on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ establishes a superior covenant to ensure an eternal salvation for all people who have faith in him. Now, in the preceding verses that we dealt with last week in chapter 9, we came to this conclusion that the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, and all that system of old covenant worship could not take away sin permanently from people. And you know that it's the sin problem that keeps us from knowing God. Our sin separates us from Him, and all people are guilty of sin. Now, there are many people today who don't believe that. But they may not believe it. That does not mean it's not true. God has revealed clearly to us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. The worship of the tabernacle, the continual sacrifices offered over and over again had purpose. God established them. That purpose was not to take away sin permanently from people, but to point to the fact there would be an ultimate sacrifice coming in the future that would take away sin and put away sin forever to all of those people who by faith received that. There was a temporary overlooking of their sins, and there was a pointing to that day when the ultimate sacrifice to take away sin would be offered. In verse 15, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to establish a new covenant, being the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest. Through his death, he ratified or put in place this new covenant that revealed the way to God. Now, sometimes people will ask this question, how are or how were Old Testament saints saved? Well, they were not saved by the sacrificial system. They were saved as we are by faith. They were saved by faith based on a coming sacrifice. In the meantime, those sins would be temporarily covered, and there would be this continual offering of these blood sacrifices pointing to the ultimate one that would come. But Jesus Christ's sacrifice was retroactive in, in 
providing the forgiveness that was needed to reconcile them to God. So those who had genuine saving faith were reconciled to God by the coming sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that would come in the future. That's what verse 15 means here when it says that this redemption was for the transgressions under the old covenant. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. He said, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So in Christ, he made the provision to take their sins away and all sins away of all people who will believe and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so what he came to do was provide redemption for transgression. That means to take away the consequences of sin. But not just to pardon sin, he also came to give an eternal inheritance. So what happened by faith in Jesus Christ when we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior we traded an eternity of judgment for an eternity of a glorious inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this death of Christ was necessary for this. In verse 16 and 17, the writer of Hebrews emphasizes uh, the necessity of the Lord's death by using the illustration of a will. Now, you're familiar with what a will is. You know, in a will, you put in there what you're going to leave to certain people. So you have your assets, and you put in a will who gets what. So like, for instance, like when Stephanie and I die, Savannah will get like a $100 bill and a mortgage <laughs> in the will. So, so you, you, got, you got the will, you got what you put in there, but nobody benefits from those things until there is the death of the one who created the will, Right? What's being emphasized here is there are the great benefits of God blocked by sin that are uh, under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ removed from those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the great benefits of the inheritance we have in God are poured out on those he saves. You with me? Do you head like that? What I'm saying is, not only does He take our sin away, He gives to us riches beyond what we could ever dream of. Starting with His presence right now, starting with the peace of God, starting with the joy of the Lord that He gives to us, the power of the Spirit of God, the pleasure of having intimacy with the one true God, even while we're here in these sin-cursed bodies, in this sin-cursed world, and then we look to the future. When we have this glorious inheritance, when we are removed from the very presence of sin, to be in His direct presence and experience all that He has for us forever. The Bible says we're going to reign with Christ. What an incredible thing that is. Now, the old covenant itself had to be ratified by blood also. And that's what is explained by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. And he's really kind of summarizing what we see in Exodus 24. Matter of fact, there are some details the writer of Hebrews gives us that's not even in Exodus 24. Now, these, implement, these implements for worship, sacrifice, were, were all purified through blood, and 
Then the Bible goes on to tell us in verses 23 and 24 that the, the copies of the original that were purified by animal sacrifices uh, were purified in that way. And then the Word of God tells us that the original true uh, tabernacle in heaven was purified or uh, entryway was made through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for any person that would call on Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. And so he kind of gives us this little summary there working through those verses. And then there are three distinct things about the Lord's work of mediation of this new covenant we need to take away with us today. He appeared to mediate this covenant. Now, let me show you three things about that. Number one, he appeared to ratify it, that is the new covenant, by his sacrifice. Now, I want you to look with me in verse 24. I'm gonna read these verses to you. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven. He didn't go into the holy of holies in the tabernacle nor the temple in, in his time but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He appeared to ratify, put in place, put in effect this new covenant by the sacrifice of himself. The Lord Jesus, after living and dying, presented himself to the Father as the perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world. He is the one that's completely perfect. He is the one who is completely effective and efficient to take away the sin of all who call on him. And his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. How do we know that? Well, because he's God the Son, and we know he's going to, but the resurrection itself, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, implies to us, was proof that God accepted the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. For people to be forgiven so they can have a relationship with God, there must be a Savior. There must be a substitute. The Word of God tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And the Lord Jesus became this sacrifice for us. He did it voluntarily. He was not forced into it. He did it um, voluntarily. The Word of God teaches us that while He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a great weight upon him. He was burdened beyond what any of us could ever imagine, distressed even to the point of death. And he prayed to the Father and he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. That is the cup of wrath about to be poured out on him. But he said this, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Matter of fact, his very incarnation into this world where he stripped off glory and he put on humanity and he came to this earth as a baby and he grew up like everyone else and he lived life and he was tempted in every way but yet without sin was of his own accord. He did that for you and me. 
He did that for us. He did so voluntarily. He did this at a point in history. The Bible tells us in verse 26, but now once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away our sin. At a chosen point in history, God had his son come to earth to be that sacrifice for our sin. The word of God calls it the end of the age. Did you know that uh, at the coming of Christ and the sacrifice on Calvary and the subsequent resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the last days began. The last days are those days between his first coming to be the sacrifice for our sins and the second coming to be the glorious, victorious Savior. The first disciples, they looked for the coming of the Lord in their lifetime. They were not telling us that he was coming in their lifetime, but they had a sense of expectancy that he, he could. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 to the church at Philippi, he says, we eagerly wait for the Savior. James said in James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. John said in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. At a point in time, he came to die and rise again and set forth the last days. And we're to be living with a sense of expectancy of his coming. He did this once, the scripture says. In verse 12 of chapter 9, it says he did this once for all. He did not offer himself often. If that was the case, that would have had to start at the foundation of the world, the Bible says, at Adam and Eve's sin and keep offering himself over and over over the years. But because he's so effective and so perfect and so glorious, his sacrifice of himself be offered one time for all time and for all people. Matter of fact, verse 27 lets us know there's a general principle. A person dies once. It's appointed for people to die once. And then the judgment. And by the way, that's a general statement because there are some people who died two times. They were raised from the dead, resuscitated, not resurrected. They were resuscitated, and they had to die again. And there will be a generation of Christians who will not die, but who will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air because they'll be alive when He comes. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But in general, we live this life here on earth and we die once. The majority of people who exist will experience death. I want you to know something. Once a person dies, they are sealed in that state. So in other words, if you go through your life and you keep rejecting Christ and you don't get serious about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior, surrendering your life to Him, and you die, you will have no hope. You're going to experience the judgment of God. That person will immediately find themselves in the intermediate hell experiencing a horrific existence until the final judgment takes place when Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and following tell us that uh, all the graves, death, and Hades will give up their dead, and those who are lost will stand before Jesus Christ, and they will be judged according to their works, and then they will be assigned to their place in the lake of fire, verse 14 and 15 tell us of Revelation chapter 20. 
I think of people over the years I've witnessed to. I think of people that I've preached to over the years that I, I know, as far as I know, never called on Jesus Christ to save them. And, and they have died since then. And there is simply absolutely no hope for them because once you die, that's it. You will experience the judgment of God forever. There's two ways to pay for sin. Someone can pay for our sins or we'll pay for our own sins. And if we reject the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must pay for our own sin forever. Because you see, no human being is perfect. So because we are so imperfect, we can never pay for them. So we'll continually be paying for them. It's like those people today who get a ginormous credit card with a huge interest rate that's so big and their income is so meager, they'll never be able to pay that off. Now that's kind of a silly illustration, but it helps us begin to see there's no possible way for a person to pay off their sin debt, their imperfection, will assign them to a continual, perpetual paying and suffering for their own sins forever and ever and ever because they rejected the ultimate sacrifice that was made for sin through Jesus Christ. But if you call on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then your sin is taken away from you, and instead of eternal judgment, you receive an eternal inheritance in Christ. All made possible because of Jesus. He puts away our sin, verse 26 makes clear. His, his offering, verse 28 says, is for the sins of many. Now, who are the many? That's anyone that calls on Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. He appeared the first time to die, to establish that new covenant, that that way to know God in an eternal relationship. But I want you to see a second thing here in this text in verse 24. He not only appeared to be that sacrifice for sin, he also now appears in heaven to advocate for those he has saved under this new covenant. And verse 24 talks about the fact that he now has appeared in the presence of God for us. That speaks of his ministry of advocacy. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us he continually intercedes for us. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, the Word of God says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Do you know that Satan loves to accuse the people of God continually? Maybe he is pointing out the faults of the people of God. Oh, oh did you see? Hey, did you see what he did? Did you see what she did? Now, Satan is not omniscient as God is, but maybe he perceives what people are thinking and he's trying to put thoughts and fuel and tempt lusts and, and, and evil thoughts toward other people and this kind of thing in, heart, in the hearts of people. And he's saying, what are they thinking right now? <laughs> I bet it's vile, but we have an advocate with the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ would simply say, I have covered that. That one is joined to me. When God looks at us because of the work of Christ, the fact that we've been joined to Christ by faith, His death has been attributed to us, His life 
attributed to us so that our sin is forgiven. He looks at us as righteous in his sight because of the work of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His sacrifice was so complete and so effective and so efficient that no one can bring a charge against God's elect, Romans chapter 8 and verse 33 says. So he appeared in the presence of God to be our advocate. Well, so far we've discovered from this text that he appeared to be the sacrifice for our sins to establish a new covenant. Then he appears now in the very presence of God to be the advocate for those he saves under the new covenant. But in third and finally, here's what we see. He will appear again for his people to experience the fullness of their salvation. How many of you in this room still struggle with sin? How many in this room uh, sense the oppression of the enemy in your life at times? How many of us know that we still live in fallen bodies that are susceptible to those things? We know that. We still live in a sin-cursed world. We still live in sin-cursed bodies. Our spirit has been redeemed and regenerated by the Lord. But there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return for his people. He will take us from the very presence of sin. When he saved us, he removed us from the penalty of sin. When he saved us, he removed us from the power of sin, even though we're still in a struggle. One day when he returns, he will remove us from the very presence of sin. We will not experience the effects of sin any longer. We will reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. We will reign with Christ in the eternal kingdom that we will no longer be tempted to sin. We will no longer experience the heartaches of sin. We will experience a perfect righteous reign by Christ himself and will rule and reign with him. Here in this part of the text, there's probably an allusion to the day of atonement that would fit this context. The day of atonement, the high priest, you know, would go into the Holy of Holies. He would offer that sacrifice, and the people would anticipate him coming back out. I mean, they were just kind of, you know, waiting on pins and needles, waiting for him to come out. When he came out, there would be a sigh. There'd be a rejoicing because their sacrifice had been accepted. Now, we know Christ's sacrifice was accepted. We know and have the assurance of our redemption. But when our glorious Lord returns, we're going to really begin to experience the fullness of our salvation. Right now, we know in part, but then we will know in full. What an incredible future we have because of Jesus. He appeared the first time to die for our sins. He appeared in heaven now, the presence of God to be our advocate. Oh, but one of these days, he's going to appear again and we'll experience the fullness of our salvation. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you to take a moment and just reflect on what I have just taught from the Scriptures.
One of the great tragedies of the Christian life is to forget about forgiveness. It's to cheapen the grace of God. The Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to help us remember continually what He's done for us because when we remember that, it fuels a love for Him that equals obedience. Reflect on that for a moment. The Word of God says in verse 28, He talks about the fact that He's going to appear again someday, not for sin, but for salvation. For those who eagerly wait on Him. Do you eagerly wait on Him? What does it mean when a person eagerly waits on the Lord? It reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. Verse 8 says, Therefore there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and not for me only, but for all those who loved His appearing. Do you know that the faithful saint of God who walks with God each day that knows they've been saved to serve the Lord and they want every aspect of their life to just be in, in, in obedience to the Lord, to please Him, what they say, what they do, how they act. They want to witness for Him and they want to serve Him. You know, those are the ones that are eagerly waiting on the Lord. And maybe today you would just have to say, you know, I'm just not eagerly waiting on Him, and the reason is I'm just not living faithfully. And today, what we're to do is confess that to Him, repent of that, stop living that way, start pursuing righteousness, godliness, love, faith, purity, patience, gentleness, those things that we're to be pursuing as a child of God. And there could be some in this room today, and you've, you've never been saved. You, you know, you've never called on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Now's the time to do that. You've heard the truth. You believe the truth. Repent today. That is, turn from sin to the Lord and trust Him to be your Savior. Call on Him right now to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior, and He will do that. As our heads are still bowed and eyes are closed, Ellis is just simply going to play right now in this time of reflection. If you need to give your life to Jesus, would you get up out of your seat, come to me and say, I need to give my life to Jesus today. The rest of us need to spend some time just doing business with God right now. Let's do that.
the Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord Jesus as an ordinance for the church is to be done often. It's a time of reflection on the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus. It helps us to remember the need to confess up and make sure we're living in accordance to the forgiveness that we've received by the Lord. It helps us to remember to preach the gospel to others and anticipate His coming. The Lord's Supper is instituted for Christians. And so if you're in the room today and you've never received Christ, I would just ask you to abstain from partaking of the Lord's Supper. And maybe there's a child who has not come to Christ yet. And, and so I would uh, just ask them to wait about that because it is for those who have been redeemed by the Lord. They've called on Him to be their Savior. Before we get further on into this point of partaking of the Lord's Supper, I would ask if anyone did not receive...